Hey, this is Kara. We're going to get to the show in just a second, but I wanted to let you know we can listen to your feedback and we're going to streamline our podcast feed starting in a couple of weeks and eliminate the full show podcast. That way we won't duplicate what we're giving you. We won't clog your feed. You can still, of course, listen to the entire show by grabbing our individual segments. It'll still all be there. You won't miss a minute. I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we put a lot of emphasis on parenting. But what if who we are is pretty hardwired? When we compare identical twins raised apart to identical twins raised together, we find that the personality similarity is the same. What that means is that living with somebody does not make you alike. What makes you alike are your common genes. What research on identical twins tells us about what you can control and maybe what you can't. What happened was that the family that had the more relaxed practice produced a concert pianist, and the other family that was very insistent on lessons did not. Then Laura Ingalls Wilder recast American history, and there's a reason we're still reading her books all these decades later. They're just a a very powerful portrayal of, of a girl growing up and becoming her own person. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In the late 1970s, a man named Jim Springer and another man named Jim Lewis became instant celebrities. Newspapers wrote articles about them. TV programs wanted to interview them. And then they hit the big time. The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Yes, still are. Would you welcome, please, Jim Lewis and Jim Springer. The remarkable thing about Springer and Lewis was that they weren't all that remarkable. They didn't have sparkling celebrity-like personalities or leading men looks. They weren't famous politicians or award-winning athletes or CEOs. But the men, who were both in their late 30s at the time, did have some odd things in common, as Johnny Carson discovered. Now, what are some of the similarities that have happened in your lives? Well, we both, uh, well Jim's been married three times. I've been married twice. His first wife, name the same as mine. His first wife is the same name as right. yours. And her second wife, and both first name. Uh, we both named our first son the same, James Allen. Uh, we both have uh, brothers named Larry. Uh, oh, and and we both, we both uh, named our dogs Toy. Which was an incredible slate of similarities. But it didn't end there. Uh, we both went on vacation in the same place, in Florida, exact same beach. Right. Yeah. Now, one or two of these things, I mean, it, it might not be so unusual that you both name your child the same name, right? Oh, yeah. But as the psychologist, where, where do they... Uh, where they take you? Some scientists wanted to... Uh, Probably went to the University of Minnesota. Because if I understand... The really reason that Jim Springer and Jim Lewis were taken to the University of Minnesota was because, as unremarkable as they might have seemed individually, they were a goldmine of similarities, which was amazing because they didn't meet each other until they were 39 years old. Well, not unless you count the 10 months that they had spent together long, long before. When we find these things in Twins Raised Apart, this gives us a whole new way of thinking about things. Nancy Siegel is an expert on twins, and she studied the two men who became known as the Jim Twins, identical twins separated four weeks after birth and each adopted by different families. So, for example, what could possibly drive somebody to name their children alike? Well, maybe it's because they like the sound of the name, James Allen, or maybe they feel that it's important to name a child after their father, because they're both both fathers were named James. Or maybe they 
are thinking about somebody famous with that kind of a name. We don't know for sure what it is, but this opens up a whole new world of explanations and possibilities that is very, very exciting. Siegel served as the assistant director of the Minnesota Center for Twin and Adoption Research, and she now directs the Twin Study Center at California State University, Fullerton. She's seen lots and lots of identical twins brought back together after almost a lifetime apart. And when that happens, it can be a little shocking. There was a pair of Scottish ladies who ate toast by cutting it into fours and leaving one piece uneaten. I mean, maybe it's the idea of self-restraint. I don't know. But see, again, this lets us think about alternative explanations for why we do what we do. Oh, and I should say, Nancy Siegel is a twin herself, someone who grew up in a world fascinated by people who seemed interchangeable. They laugh alike. They walk alike. At times they even talk alike. You can lose your mind when cousins are two of a kind. When Siegel was a kid in the 1960s, the Patty Duke show about identical cousins was a hit on TV. That show followed on the heels of the Oscar-nominated film The Parent Trap, about two twins who switch places. The nerve of her coming here with your face. What are you going to do about it? Do? What I never say can I do, silly? I'd bite off her nose. Then she would look like you. But Nancy Siegel's sister was a fraternal twin, and she didn't feel anything like her. Well, we didn't look alike. We didn't behave alike. We had different tastes and preferences and many, many different things. And in fact, we grew up in New York City on the seventh floor of a big apartment building. And people thought the twins on the seventh floor were the two sisters who lived next door to us because they looked a lot more alike than we did. Yet somehow Siegel's own experience as a twin was intriguing enough that it became her life's work. I was so fascinated with the fact that we were two children in the same family with the same parents, same experiences, and same friendships, and yet we ended up being so very different. And that really sparked my interest in human behavior in general, and in twin studies in particular. And in fact, I've made the study of human behavior from a genetic perspective my entire career. Siegel says fraternal twins are like any siblings. They share, on average, 50% of their genes. But identical twins who share 100% of their genes, they allow us to get a sense of which parts of us are baked in the cake and which parts are influenced by our environment. They tell us, as you'll hear, about the effects of parenting, what might happen when you push your kids to practice piano or when you expose them to books. Identical twins can help us understand why we behave the way we do. And almost every discipline finds twins extremely useful. Economists can use twins to understand if there's a genetic influence on wage earnings and if education influences wage earnings. Political scientists can use twins to understand if there's a genetic influence on political affiliation and political investment. And people interested in religious studies have used twins to understand whether or not there's a genetic component to religiosity, the extent to which you are invested in a religion or how important religion is in your life. So that it brings a very new perspective to many, many different disciplines. And when I go to conferences, I'm just amazed at how many people are using twin studies in really creative ways. Hmm. It's interesting, you know, like to take religiosity, for example, um, I guess what you've got is people looking at identical twins and saying, well, gee, if this identical twin is very religious and this identical twin isn't, their their twin is not religious at all, 
there's something here that's not quite as genetic as they both have brown eyes. Well, of course. Now, now let me point out that just because a trait has genetic influence does not mean that it's completely genetic. Nothing Mm -hmm. is. Everything is influenced by the environment. And so when we study religiosity, we compare the similarities of identical and fraternal twins. We find that about 50% of the individual differences from person to person seem to be explained by genetic influences. But that also means that about 50% are explained by environmental ones. And what's so fascinating about religiosity is that when they studied it first in young twins living at home, they found no genetic component at all. And why was that? Because the kids were living at home under their parents' thumb and had to do what the parents said. Right. But when they began to study older twins, adults who had moved away from home and who had much more control over their environment, that's when they began to see the genetic effects. Let's talk about uh, people being reared apart. What did you find when you uh, were able to sort of reunite people as adults and and look at, you know, how their lives compared? Here they are, twins. They They do not know each other until they're adults. What did these twins, what did they have in common? What were they like when they met each other as adults? Well, of course, to meet a twin for the first time is a very exciting experience for most of them because most of these adults as children were adoptees and so never really uh, looked like anyone in the family or acted like them. So to suddenly meet somebody who looks so much like you and acts so much like you is quite an extraordinary experience. The identicals were, of course, more alike than the fraternals, so I'll talk more about them. Okay. The identical twins were very alike in virtually every measured trait. Their intelligence was very similar, their Mm. personalities, their hobbies, their interests, the way they dressed. The interesting thing is that when we compare identical twins raised apart to identical twins raised together, we find that the personality similarity is the same. And that's a very, very important finding because what that means is that living with somebody does not make you alike. What makes you alike are your common genes. And you can ask the question, how is it that two people, even though they're identical, are raised apart and end up with such similar lives. You know, Kara, what we believe happens is that all of us gravitate towards certain elements of our environments. You know, we like crowds or we don't, or we like amusement parks or we like schools. And so we craft our environments actively within the environment in which we're raised. And we believe that that's what identical twins do as well. Well, one of the really interesting things, I feel like it also just kind of begs the question of parenting and how much parenting matters. Um, I mean, like if I think about, you know, um, the question of like, should you buy girls pink stuff, you know, and and doll? This is a question that, that parents think about. You know, should you buy them like Barbie kind of things or should you buy them engineering kits and make sure you don't sort of put them in a box that's like a traditionally girly box? Well, I mean, if, if parenting doesn't really matter and they're going to be inclined towards math if they're inclined towards math and they're going to be inclined towards pink if they're inclined towards pink... Does it kind of make you rethink, like, all the sort of analysis that people put into parenting? Well, I think it lets us rethink the role of parents, but it does not in any way diminish the role of parents. I believe that parents have the enormous responsibility of being attentive and sensitive to each child's individual tastes, temperaments, and talents. And parents know that children come into the world with their own interests and predispositions. In fact, 
to my mind, the most intelligent parents are the parents of fraternal twins because they had these two kids who were age matched who are very, very different at the same time. Hmm. So parenting is not something that we should toss aside. And also keep in mind that the genes are not deterministic. Genes work in probabilistic ways. They make things more likely. They don't make things absolutely sure to happen. And so if a child is mathematically inclined, well, the child needs supports. The child needs books and opportunities to practice that skill. Without those, the child may not develop. So I think those are very, very important things to keep in mind when we think of the role of mothers and fathers. Have you seen that with identical twins that, you know, like if you have two identical twins separated at birth, have you seen sort of the the differences in parenting practices? Because obviously these are two kids, they get separated and they have two completely different sets of parents. Have you seen, you know, things play out where maybe both kids are mathematically inclined, but one set of parents gives kids math books and the other doesn't pay any attention to that? Well, it's very interesting the way that works out. And these kinds of things can work out in kind of surprising, unanticipated ways. We had a pair of twins who were raised in different families in England, one in a home with a lot of educational opportunities and one with a home with very few. And yet the child with very few educational opportunities was intensely interested in reading, got herself a library card, and when they met, they had the same level of intelligence and they were the avid readers of the same books. Now, In another case, the parenting practices were quite different when it came to music lessons. In one case, the mother and father really were quite insistent that their child practice the piano, and in the other family, it was more relaxed. But what happened was that the family that had the more relaxed practice produced a concert pianist, and the other family that was very insistent on lessons did not. So these things can work in very, very um, idiosyncratic fashion. But but so so then that brings me back again to the sort of power of parenting. And I do think parents are left wondering, well, then maybe I shouldn't push that hard with piano lessons or piano practice, because if it's going to be it's sort of if it's fated to be, it's going to be. And maybe I'm maybe I'm pushing too hard. Well, I think that parents need to just be attentive to what's going on. Certainly, if a child is given piano lessons and the child likes it and is good at it, I think parents should encourage that. But ultimately, it's the child who's going to decide once that child gets to be an adult. Certainly, as I said earlier, parents need to provide children with the opportunities and the events that will bring out these talents. And that's an enormous responsibility. We're going to pause for a moment here and come back with Nancy Siegel, a national expert on twins. She's a psychology professor at Cal State Fullerton. After the break, we'll look at what twin studies tell us about our own ability to avoid health problems and more about how you got that personality of yours. You can find this whole interview at our website, innovationhub.org, or on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From WGBH Radio and PRI, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Back right after this. Sisters and brothers, brothers and sisters, ain't we There's a city in Ohio, not too far from Cleveland. It's a fairly small city, and one that has become world famous for a parade it holds every summer. Many of the people who come to the parade have spent their lives as objects of fascination. So you want to know where we're from? Yeah, Yeah. we're from. Okay, originally from East Boston, and then uh, 
We graduated college together, then we moved down to a D.C. area to work for the government. We started work the same day. We retired one day apart. The city is Twinsburg, Ohio, and every year twins young and old converge and meet others like them. Oh my God, we love it. We are always together. Inseparable. We, yeah. We know each other's thoughts. We're always on, uh, without, without saying. This is like my best friend on the God's green earth. It just feels like having a regular sister. We have the same friends. Nancy Siegel has spent a lifetime studying twins, and perhaps more importantly, what twins can teach those of us who aren't twins. She says that identical twins raised apart tend to have strikingly similar IQs and strikingly similar interests, even though they were brought up in completely different families. Which makes you wonder whether we're shaped more by what's inside us than what's outside. I usually say that parents of one child are environmentalists and parents of two children are geneticists because parents of two children really understand that children come into the world as just different people with different interests and abilities and talents. Siegel has served as the assistant director of the Minnesota Center for Twin and Adoption Research and now directs the Twin Studies Center at Cal State Fullerton. And she says that twin studies have pushed many scholars to rethink the tremendous power of genes. For example, here's an interesting question. How much do your genes determine how smart you are? We do find that the identical twins raised apart are more alike in intelligence than the fraternal twins raised apart. The identical twins raised apart are not quite as alike as the identical twins raised together. Now, an interesting finding is that when you look at identical twins raised apart, the child who might have had a much better educational background tends to do better on these quantitative tests. But nevertheless, the two pair, the two people in the pair are still more similar to one another than they are to anybody else in the sample. So, you know, environment plays a role, but genetics plays a role at the same time. So let's talk for a minute about health. Um, if personality, if intelligence, um, if they are somewhat similar, I wonder about the health of identical twins and whether you find that, like, lifestyle has any impact. Well, it, it really varies in terms of genetic influence from health trait to health trait. But overall, what twins have taught us is that there are genetic components to this, but they've also taught us that there are things that we can do. Now, I have seen twins where one is obese and one is not. Hmm. And I've seen twins where uh, one has allergies and one does not. And so the fascinating thing about these cases is what is it about the twin who's not affected that we can use to prevent these conditions in the general public? And that's where twins are becoming so increasingly popular now among people who look at epigenetics and molecular genetics to see how we can intervene in people who might be at risk for these things and prevent the recurrence of disease. Um, let me play a clip for you. Uh, I did a, a recent interview, 2018, with uh, Robert Sapolsky, uh, a professor of biology at Stanford. His contention is essentially that twin studies are valued by scholars because they start from day one, right? They, you kind of have this purity because these two kids go off to two different environments. Um, his feeling is that's not really the case. I want to play a little clip of what he says for you and get your take on it. Uh, here's Robert Sapolsky. Probably the biggest problem that plagues both twin studies, but especially adoption studies, 
is adoption studies in particular is predicated on the notion that, okay, you get a kid and you adopt them away two seconds after they're born. And instead of growing up in the middle of the Amazon, they grow up in the Gobi Desert and their adoptive parents, all they get from them is environment and their biological parents, all they got from them was genes because after all, they were adopted away within seconds of birth and thus if you see more similarities to the biological parents, you could then attribute it to genes case closed. And what has completely done in that whole assumption is the fact that environment doesn't begin at birth. You've just spent nine very intimate months sharing your mother's circulation, your mother's sensory experiences in lots of cases. And it turns out that matters enormously. Adult risk of metabolic syndrome, obesity, hypertension, clinical depression, schizophrenia, all of those are significantly modulated by prenatal environment. Nancy, does that shared fetal environment diminish or compromise the power of twin studies? Um, Not at all, Kara. And with all due respect to Dr. Sapolsky, who's a well-known scholar, Sharing a womb for identical twins actually makes them less alike than more alike. And the reason is that the vast majority of them are subjected to some form of mutual circulation, which can lead to physical differences, behavioral differences, what have you. Uh, If you look at the literature on diabetes, on schizophrenia, you will see that you do not find 100% concordance. You find instead that for schizophrenia, it's about 40% similarity. That is, if one twin is schizophrenic, the other one has a 40% chance of becoming so. Diabetes is about 50%. Multiple sclerosis, about 50%. So that if the shared environment was so critical, as he seems to claim, then the twins should be similarly affected, and they're not. Even when it comes to identical twins born to mothers infected with HIV, the twin further down in the vaginal canal more more uh, exposed to the vaginal mucosa is more likely to be at risk than the other twin. Is there two final questions about things that have kind of surprised you or impressed you? Is there a piece of research that you remember hearing, you know, a paper delivered or, or just something that you read that whether it goes to economics or psychology or medicine about twins that really just shocked and kind of surprised you and made you think differently about something? Well, one was something I mentioned earlier, and that was that the personality similarity of identicals raised apart is just as alike as identical twins raised together. I would have thought that twins raised apart would have been less alike. Uh, But again, that just shows that genes do influence uh, the similarities in people living together. And I guess the other thing that surprised me through the Minnesota study of twins raised apart was the fact that we would see similarities in so many atypical or odd behaviors, such as how you hold a can of beer or how you eat a piece of toast or the fact that you like to scratch your ear with a paper clip. And you had another <laughs> pair that used to wear rubber bands around their wrists all the time. So these are the kinds of things that I find so intriguing. And I'm wondering how we go from genes at the molecular level to these things at the observable level. And along the way, I've also discovered some very rare types of reared apart twins. And those are the ones who were accidentally switched at birth. Mm-hmm. So Uh, For example, my most recent book called Accidental Brothers profiles the history and research of two sets of identical twins born 150 miles apart in in 
Columbia, South America. They're now 29 years old. And what happened was that at day one, when one little boy was very sick, he was brought 150 miles to Bogota to a better hospital hmm. for treatment. But they accidentally brought back the wrong twin. Oh and so gosh. they grew up as two sets of unrelated brothers thinking they were fraternal twins. And that has been a very, very fascinating study for me, uh, that book, Accidental Brothers. We have a lot of research in there, a lot of the um, social relationship aspects. You know, what I don't find terribly surprising, but what I find always intriguing is just the social rapport, the intimacy that identical twins raised apart developed between themselves. It's as if they've known each other all their lives. Hmm. And as one twin told me when he met his identical brother at the age of 32, he said, you know, it's not like we're meeting for the first time. It's more like we've been on vacation and we're simply filling in the details. (laughs) I thought that was a great way to express it. Nancy Siegel is a psychology professor at Cal State Fullerton. She's the author of Entwined Lives, Twins, and What They Tell Us About Human Behavior. Nancy, thanks for your time. Thank you, Kara. piece of info that might interest you here. Nancy Siegel says there are not only lots more fraternal twins than there once were, mostly because of technologies like in vitro fertilization, there are also, because of those same technologies, more identical twins. Somehow the increased handling of the embryo can cause it to split, she says. But the increase in identical twins is still tiny compared with fraternal twins. We've got lots more on twin studies, from the gym twins who were on Johnny Carson, to twins accidentally switched at birth, on our website, innovationhub.org. And now an update on an interview we aired a couple of weeks ago. In the seven-plus years that Innovation Hub has existed, I think I'm pretty safe in saying we've never received so many responses to one interview. And to be fair, it was a provocative one. Why would studying something that you're never going to use be be so important for success in the modern world? That's Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University, and someone who's been asking himself for a long time why we teach what we teach in school. Why is it you've got to do three or four years of foreign language and then not even learn it and then and see that doors are closed to you unless you do it? At least the doubts were there for, for almost as long as I can remember. Kaplan is the author of the book The Case Against Education, and he says lots of classes that kids take in grade school and high school don't have much of an effect on them. As adults, they don't know much poetry or French or American history, so why spend so much time and money on things that few kids are ever going to use? He thinks we should offer more diverse options to students, especially kids who would be more engaged on a vocational track. And he argues college shouldn't be such an important goal. If it wasn't put on a pedestal, maybe we wouldn't live in an era of such huge degree inflation. And our debt burdens might be a bit lighter. It used to be the idea that a secretary would need a college degree. This would have seemed crazy to people. And now, if you're entry level, it's almost required just to be a secretary. So... This is one where we can actually do more with less, right? And, you know, that's, that's where I always start. And I would start there especially because it's such an unpopular thing to say. I'm almost the only one saying it. So I feel like I've got to. Well, we heard from plenty of people who question Kaplan's premise. I don't think we should throw out things like music and foreign languages because these things challenge us in different ways and they keep creative pathways open. 
That's Susie Gologli, a kitchen and bathroom remodeling designer from Columbia, Maryland. And learning a foreign language can help you better understand and appreciate the the way that your own language works. For example, like in French, the adjective comes after the noun. In English, the adjective comes before the noun. So to see something structured differently makes you need those descriptive words like adjective and noun to be able to describe how does this language work differently than the one that I'm currently speaking. Glogli says having a broad range of courses offered is important. And though she knows there's lots of debate about how effective America's schools are, she feels good about the public schools that her two kids attend in Maryland. She does agree with Kaplan's notion that we've seen degree inflation, but she says it's logical on the part of employers who feel like high school degrees may not come with the math and English skills that they used to. Meanwhile, we heard from lots of educators. Some disagreed with Kaplan and some didn't disagree as much as you might think, like John Beckwith, a Spanish teacher from Colorado. Spanish is a class that's an elective here. We don't have many electives, and so... I would say probably 60% of the kids that are in my class don't want to be in the class. Beckwith says that when he went to school in the 1970s, kids learned to work on cars. The school got together and built a house every year. And one of the goals of education should be to find something that really engages each student. We have a tendency to sort of not want to take away somebody's chance to be an astronaut or a brain surgeon or whatever. I think by the time somebody's 14 years old, the parents, the student, um, professionals that are teachers can kind of make an assessment that some students would be maybe better suited for something that's, uh, that would provide them more immediate employment. Samantha Whitelaw, who taught in Baltimore public schools, says she's not against vocational education, but she wants to make sure that all students are treated equally. A lot of people are just so quick to say that a system's not working. It's that we need to get rid of it. And I am very big into just pushing for reform and trying to change the system to make it work for everyone. Thanks so much to everybody who wrote in and who called. We always love hearing from you on any topic. Just email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. And if you want to hear the original Brian Kaplan segment that started all this, it's on our website, innovationhub.org. By their late 50s, most people who are destined to become famous have achieved some measure of success. But that's most people. This is a story of a woman who, at 57, had nightmares, anxiety, almost no money, and definitely no fame. Her name was Laura Ingalls Wilder. Wilder would become a creator of books, a recreator of her own life, and someone who helped shape our vision of the American frontier. The weather changed, and the air got sharp and clear. Pa said we could expect a cold winter because the fox and muskrats and beavers were growing heavy fur. Even before the TV version of Little House on the Prairie captivated viewers around the world, the books had sold millions of copies, inspired cookbooks and dolls and animated versions. And for many children living through the Depression or World War II, the books did something else that was rather striking. They replaced the emblematic frontier image of Davy Crockett or Daniel Boone 
with the image of a woman. Caroline Fraser tells the real and largely unknown story of Wilder in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Caroline, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the things I didn't realize before I read your book was that um, the story that she tells, if you read those books when you were a kid, um, it was an incredibly kind of optimistic version of this very, very poor, almost destitute childhood that she had. Um, and that, in in fact, growing up in the 1870s, like on a farm in the upper Midwest, it was not easy. No, it sure wasn't. And uh, the really grim reality of, of homesteading is something I think we've lost sight of. In my own family, had always had kind of a little bit of a sense of it because my grandparents were all farmers in the Midwest mm-hmm. and couldn't get out of there fast enough. I mean, <laughs> the stories that they told about farming were, were so grim and really emphasized what a, what a terribly sort of almost brutal lifestyle it was to be farming in, in places where the weather was uh, not reliable, um, not super friendly to uh, these often huge families who were, who were trying to uh, raise wheat in, in areas that were maybe not well designed for that that it really gave me always, I think, a sense that there was more to the story behind the little right. house books, even, even though I loved them. Why do you think she um, put that kind of gloss on it? Like, you know, I mean, I think people who read the books almost think that the life that she talks about is like a life to aspire to, a life where people are happy and love each other. But when you talk, you know, when you talk about the reality of it, it it's like people like are, they don't know if they're going to have enough, you know, food to get through the day or the week. Um, why uh, make people aspire to something that she knew wasn't all that great? Well, she always had a very keen sense of the fact that she was writing for children. Hmm. And so she did leave out a lot of the darker aspects of of, uh, the lifestyle because she felt they were inappropriate. But I also think the fact that she was writing these books during the Depression really played a big role in how she began to kind of reinterpret her past because she disapproved quite strongly of people accepting aid from the government, for example, which is which is ironic because, of course, her family had done so uh, through the Homestead Act, right. which is one of the biggest, you know, giveaways in, in American history. So You're just giving away land at, was, <laughs> yes. was it like $1.25 an acre? What, what, what was the cost on the land? Well, it's it changed at various points, but, um, you know, the Homestead Act, if you filed a claim on 160 acres, all you had to pay up front was, you know, a filing fee, which was, I think, in, in uh, Charles Ingalls' case, was like $14. Okay. And wow. then you got the land if you proved up on it after five years, if you were able to, to stay on it and build a dwelling hmm. and, and plow some land. Um, so it, it essentially was a, a giveaway. Hmm. And so why she didn't see that as of a piece with the kind of government relief that was happening during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression is is a bit of a question. Uh, but she certainly, I think, 
felt that it was part of, of the job of these books to portray a life where people just had to make the best of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why they became so popular during mm. the Depression. So so part of the idea is, like, you can do it yourself. Even if that wasn't quite actually accurate, right. it was like, that was the message, you can do it yourself. Right. And, and you know, Americans have always had this kind of love affair with the idea of self-reliance. Right. We want to believe that's what we are, even when it's not true. Let's talk for a second about um, how these books got written in the first place. Because, you know, for most of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life, she was poor. She was kind of working to get herself out of um, difficult situations. She uh, married Almanzo Wilder, but he had a stroke in his 20s. How, when she was, you know, just about 60 years old, did these books start getting written? Well, that in, in a, is a story in itself and, and a fascinating one, I think, because a lot of people have assumed that all of a sudden, you know, she sits down at the age of, of 60 and starts writing her memoirs. But uh, in fact, it was a, a much longer evolution than that. Uh, she really had ambitions, I think, even as a young woman, to be a writer uh, and began talking to her daughter, who is uh, Rose Wilder Lane. And her daughter, after graduating from high school, became a telegrapher, ended up in San Francisco, and almost immediately became a journalist in, in San Francisco writing for newspapers. Now, the kind of journalist that she was <laughs> was a very uh, different um, kind than, than uh, we would consider to be a legitimate writer today. I mean, she worked for these newspapers that were essentially part of the history of, of yellow journalism. The San Francisco Bulletin was where she worked. But I think that that uh, from the very beginning, she was encouraging her mother to start writing as well, because uh, Rose saw the easy money to be made writing for newspapers, which were a much bigger deal at that point than they are now. And, and there was a lot more money in it. And, and Laura did, in fact, you know, beginning in around 1910s, start writing for a farm paper, the Missouri Ruralist. So it wasn't like she just all of a sudden sat down when she was 60 and started writing. She, she had really served quite a, a number of years writing for newspapers. Uh, you write that when she started, you know, sort of jotting down what she remembered and writing these books, that it was so hard and painful for her to relive her childhood that it was, it was like a really traumatic experience in some ways to get started on these books. Yeah, she clearly had, you know, in the intervening decades, had not spent a lot of time kind of agonizing over what uh, had happened and, and about her loss of her, you know, parents. Her, her father died when about 10 years after she and her husband had left the area, so she didn't get to see him for many years. And I think that things like uh, her sister Mary's blindness, her sister Mary became ill as a teenager and went blind. Those things were incredibly hard for her to revisit. You know, I think that once she had started the process of thinking about those things, she almost couldn't stop thinking about it and it would keep her awake at night. And I think she also really wrestled with the fact that her father was not as successful 
as she might have wished he had been, and and that he experienced a lot of failures and, and had a lot of debts, and she really wanted to kind of write all that out of the story, which, in fact, she did. One of the things that I don't know if she struggled with portraying it, but she certainly talks about the Native Americans who lived around where she lived when she was a child and her portrayal of those people has been, especially in recent years, has been um, incredibly controversial and criticized. The American Library Association changed the name of uh, an award that was that has long been named after her because they felt like um, that her books uh, reflected, this is a quote, uh, racist and anti-Native sentiments and are not universally embraced. You know, first of all, I wonder... When she wrote these books, which was uh, quite a long time, like 50 years or more after she had actually experienced the thing, the, the you know, actually like been a child, um, how did she think about portraying um, Native Americans, African Americans who also, you know, show up in the books? Uh, yeah, just give me a sense of like, did she struggle with that at all? I don't think so. I think that she wanted to record her memories and her most some of the most dramatic memories that she had concerned the period of time when the family was in Kansas. And it was there that they encountered the Osage Indians whose land they were living on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I am not sure how much she recognized how transgressive her father's actions were. But she did know that he didn't own the land that, you know, Charles Ingalls built the little house on the prairie on. (laughs) She did Hmm. know that. She knew that her father was a squatter on that land. But I don't think she had any kind of intellectual, you know, understanding of, of what she was writing about or the history. She just wanted to record her memories. And I think that what people are are grappling with now is, you know, that we see her very romanticized view of Indians in in a very different way than readers saw it in in 1935. Hmm. What do you think, like when you see as somebody who's, you know, her biographer, when you see, you know, awards like with her name and then her name is taken off, what do you think of that? Well, one of the things that I think is important is that this is a process that's been going on, uh, kind of the the revisionist thinking about the the Little House on the Prairie in particular has been going on since the 1950s. You know, her editor, Ursula Nordstrom, who is one of the most famous figures in children's literature, asked her to change one of the sentences in Little House on the Prairie to reflect the fact that, that there were Indians living on the on the land. Wilder had written there were no people there, <laughs> and, and they changed it to read there were no settlers hmm. there. And so this has, has really been going on for a long time, and I think it finally came to a head recently because librarians felt that because they serve children, that they needed to have an award that reflected a wider 
and more inclusive audience than than simply uh, an award that was named for Laura Ingalls Wilder. So uh, they made it clear when they changed the name of their award that they didn't intend this to be censorship. You know, they weren't trying to say, don't read these books. They were just saying, we feel that we need to serve all children in, in a way that is inclusive. So I don't really have a, a problem with the fact that they changed the name. I, I do have a problem with, with uh, attempts to censor the books. I think it's a different question to ask, should the, the books be taught in school, mm-hmm. than it is to ask, should children read them? Mm-hmm. When did you first start uh, reading the Little House books? Do you remember? You know, I think I was eight or nine. Okay. Um, my sister had read them first and, and loved them and kind of passed them along to me. And did you become, like, were you just a, a, a normal sort of person who liked them? Or did you become, I, I mean, since you have now written this huge biography of uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, did you become more interested in the stories and who she really was than your average child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't normal. <laughs> no, I, I read them uh, over and over again and, and loved them. Uh, and I think a lot of fans feel that as, as kids. The books are so interesting because they're, they're full of all these kind of terrifying episodes. You know, there are blizzards and, and the locust plague and, you know, they're full of all kinds of disasters. And yet there's something incredibly comforting about them to kids. And you hear this over and over again when you talk to, to people who have been fans. And it's a, it's a fascinating thing that, that Wilder achieved, I think, in, in the writing was, was to tell something of the real story of how hard their life was, while at the same time suggesting that it's all going to be okay, mm-hmm. you know, that it's all going to work out in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, both the books and the TV show um, had these huge and, and very diverse fan bases. Um, you write, and this, like, amazed me, that Ronald Reagan cried in the White House watching the TV show, um, that the Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein was a fan, uh, that former vice presidential nominee Sarah Palin's kids remembered those books, the Little House books, as the books that they had read when they were kids. Um, it... it it's kind of staggering the uh, broad draw of this story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it just it continues to be a perennially popular series, and and the writing in it is in them is is so beautiful that that even though I think now kids are very aware of the fact that they're you know the books are full of stereotypes and. And there, there are things in them that you wouldn't see in books published today. But they also just give you a remarkable glimpse of what life must have been like for people of a, of a previous era. And, and they're just, they're so moving. You know, I, I, it's hard to understate that because they're just a, a very powerful portrayal of, of a girl growing up and becoming her own person, uh, becoming uh, a really powerful person in her own right. 
And that, I think, remains very important to a lot of women. When you think about, like, what the defining legacy of um, the Little House books uh, is, what, what do you think that, that legacy is? Well, I think one of the things that, that remains really important to me, and I think a lot of the readers, is the portrait of the relationship between Laura and her father. I think that that's one of the most moving aspects of these books. And it's unusual because a lot of children's literature doesn't focus very much on fathers. Fathers are often uh, absent or missing or uh, disappeared in, in children's books, or there's a lot of bad fathers in some books. So I think that that remains a, a kind of um, untouchable part of her legacy. But certainly the way that she has made us think about our own past, about how settlers moved across the land and what happened to them when they did. You know, if you read these books as an adult, I think it becomes clear that the story was actually more complicated. And there's a lot of hints at that. You know, there's a lot of suggestions that the project that was represented by the Homestead Act did not really work out for a lot of people. So I think I think its legacy, the legacy of the Little House books is to make us think about our own history and, and question a lot of the assumptions that we have about it. Caroline Fraser is the author of Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder, which won the Pulitzer Prize. Caroline, thank you so much. Thank you. How else the Little House books have changed America? They've inspired many political conservatives. We'll have more on that at our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Hannah Ubley and Nadia Lewis. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.